Adam and I have been talking prior to you know the planned show, and one of the thoughts I've I've said is that you know, the podcast seems to be really striking a tenor of some solid information at the right time, and the question I have a little bit is how we break into the spheres that need us most, how the listeners can help that happen. How does Brief History of Power become not just a small talk in a corner, but the talk that those who hunger for it are, are finding? Uh, those of you who are finding the show seem to be pretty excited about it. And so, I don't know, Dr. Kuntz, do you have, that's not my opening question. It does not count. So do you have, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that has a lot to do with whether the listeners are consuming this as content or consuming this as a launching board for their thoughts so that they can use wisdom in their own lives. So I don't have the skills, the capacities, the connections, the vocations that the listeners do necessarily. And so I am utilizing, believe me, I'm doing all I can within what I do have and with whom I am connected to and trying to extend those things. But I think some of this depends on the listener's desire to use this information the way that you should use information, which is for wisdom, so for life. And that relies on not just passing along the podcast, which is going to be helpful to a lot, of, a lot more people, but it also relies on being able to form real life groups so that, for example, uh, the Lutheran church is not completely destroyed by its general incapacity to act or to plan for the future and general passivity. And that requires, even in that case where I am vocationally connected to it, that requires involvement by the laity, knowledge by the clergy. So these are things where, yeah, I mean, you know, I can spend more on marketing or something, but even more than that, I don't, it, I, it's not, I don't, I don't wake up every day and think, how can five more people listen to what I'm saying? I want you to actually use what you've learned in however it is that you can use it best and to start thinking about the life that you've been given as an opportunity and the time that you've been given as opportune rather than thinking of them as things to be like lamented or, or cried about. And that is something that I hope the podcast is doing. I think people are excited because there is a combination of things that you probably haven't heard before or heard discussed in quite this way, but also things that are actually useful, not in a utilitarian way, but in sort of a deep way, useful for life. And I hope that that includes everything from, you know, your own use of the time that God gives you all the way to whether our church is just shattered and scattered by something like vaccine mandates. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, hmm, weather. Um, <laughs> waking up wanting five more people, uh, you know, to listen to, to my podcast, having been in yeah. this, this gig for a while, it's pay to play. I've known that to get to the top, uh, when it, when it, you deal with a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, however, and even to the level where I was approached recently by someone who said, um, Hey, I could probably pay for you to have, you know, 
10,000, 100,000 subscribers on YouTube instead of, you know, what, what you've natively grown, but you should know if that would happen, uh, you don't have the capacity to deal with the fallout in your life that will create. And so you'll have to be ready for that. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, let's not do that right. then. <laughs> um, uh, but, <laughs> yeah. but so like, so, so getting all of that, what spurred yeah. the question for me is, you know, re-listening to our episodes as they're coming out because Honestly, I learn a lot from you and I do want to make sure that I didn't say anything too off the hinge, you know, uh, and, <laughs> and, and, you know, I find myself taking notes. I find myself just really glad for having heard what we talked about, whether it's my question, yeah. your answer, vice versa and around and, and thinking, how is this only a small LCMS podcast? How is this only what this is? Because there's just, this is just content that anybody could use. Anybody could be using yeah, this content right now. Yeah, and it, right. it's so useful, as you point out. It is so ridiculously useful, especially living in the United States of America, um, watching this economic collapse happen around us, which gets me to my actual opening question. And I guess we did just definitely do an opening. Um, but that's okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll get through it. Um, yeah, this one's fine. for the for the pious. If you're pious, you got to cover your ears maybe here a little bit. But uh, Dr. Koontz, are you familiar with the phrase SHTF? And if so, how do you use that phrase? Um, uh, this is out of the Aguirre book. Uh, yeah. The yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, what, do you, what do you use to refer to the SHTF? Do you, I mean, he uses the whole phrase. He writes the whole thing. Okay, whatever. I want to talk about something. Uh, there's a guy that's been around for a long time in the survivalist world, James Wesley Rawls Jr., who usually uses the abbreviation Tiatwaki, the end of the world as we know it. And that I think is not only more genteel, but also captures better what's happening because SHTF covers the idea, and this is a family show, family podcast, and unless we're discussing the history of Hollywood, which we will yeah, eventually. Yeah. Yeah, right. But this is a family rest. show. Yeah, family show. So SHTF, I think, you know, that's something that you say at work when you can see that things are not actually going that well and that this is going to fall apart. And there's an element of that that we can see with our reality right now. T-E-O-T-W-A-K-I, the end of the world as we know it, I think captures something better, which is we don't know. And I was just talking to a buddy about this yesterday. We don't actually know what it is that we're going to be dealing with. Yeah. Right. Because we're looking at things that whether we're talking about supply chains or we're talking about churches or we're talking about the education system with people increasingly having no faith in it whatsoever. We're yeah. just looking at a lot of unprecedented things. So saying that this is, oh, well, you know, my boss is crazy and this new guy's crazy, so I can see what's going to happen here. And then it finally happens. That's, <laughs> that's, I mean, you've seen people yell at each other before. So, you know, that, that's actually a lot more predictable than the end of the world as we know it. And it doesn't mean that everything is going to blow up and like, there's going to be nothing left. And there's going to be, you know, I don't know, 40,000 people on the entire American continent. It means that. I don't know what it's going to be like in this city or that city when, you know, we're 48 hours away from the grocery stores being, you know, out of food, or we are doing things that are, and this is kind of America for a long time, doing things that are totally constitutionally unprecedented and unforeseen. So I prefer the end of the world as we know it, cumbersome as that is, to SHTF both because this is a family show and also because 
I think it captures a lot more of what it is that we're headed into. I do. I do like that. I do. I, as a Christian with my eschatology, I kind of tend to reserve end of the world for the return of my Lord. Um, yeah. But I, and so let me suggest for just for the listener's sake and conversation, no one's actually going to take this one. Right. But uh, how about we do a, a Tia Docky? So it's the end of the dollar as we know it, because I think that in many ways <laughs> is what's happening. Right. Like the planet's not going away. I don't think, yeah. you know, yeah. Um, yeah. but the dollar and you, you mentioned, you know, unconstitutional things. I'm just going to say, you know, uneconomic things. They're, they're uneconomic. <laughs> and, and that's that's going to blow back on us. But I like it, though. Uh, Tiawaki. OK, so then when when <laughs> Tiawaki takes place, yeah. what role will physiological well-being play in such a likely future scenario? Ooh. Uh, physiology is a lot more important than it is made out to be. And you will realize this as soon as you look at all the things that the FDA approved <laughs> before it approved experimental jabs, they approve plenty of things and uh, you will find that it is more expensive to eat real foods. I won't even say unprocessed necessarily, just, I can identify this from nature foods than it is to eat things that are extremely processed, that are very artificial. And this is one of the basic indices you should use in talking to people about what is going on. So you can't agree with people that you're concerned about other people's health. Okay. If they were serious about our health, they would not have recommended the food pyramid to us that they did for so long. They would not allow things to be put into our bodies, either through the water supply or the, you know, a logistic system of grocery stores, largely none of that would actually be happening. They would just ban them as poisons. Since that's not happening, how serious can our rulers actually be about the goals that they say that they have for us? Uh, you know, I mean, much less the contradictions that are specific to COVID type things, kids in masks, people inside their houses all the time, et cetera, closing down gyms. Okay. Besides all that, even before or after, or while you're talking about COVID, just ask yourself why our food is what it is and why is it that way? And you can tell that when you have people that are fat, people that are sick, people that are susceptible Obviously, in any situation of stress, there's a reason that metaphorically, when someone is, you know, cutting back on unnecessary things, they talk about cutting the fat, because that means that in any stressful situation, you either lose the fat or the fat takes you down with it. So physiologically, being weak or sick or thin, but lacking in, you know, the muscular development that you need to do the kinds of things you might need to do. All of those things become very, very, very important. And it is ignorance of those things are acting like they're not real, you know, our military lowering PT standards, all kinds of things that give you a sense that we're not really ready for. And our regime does not expect enormous, basic life stressors. Hmm to be in either our troops, but also in average Americans' lives. Because if they did, we would be getting ready for that, right? Like I would, I would say, okay, I'm going to just get used to consuming this amount of calories 
while doing this amount of exercise rather than saying, how can I max my calories, eat whatever I want and still do nothing, which is kind of American default as far as I understand it right now. This seems to be uh, the best term is Gnostic approach to food that I can see. It's It doesn't really exist. You just eat it and it feels good. And no one seems to believe that it, it impacts you as uh, chemistry. Right. And it, it does. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think in addition to chemistry, something that you can see early Christians talking a lot about vis-a-vis gluttony hmm. is that we don't take seriously the way in which material things are actually portals to other forms of self-destruction. And we think that, and I, I guess Christians think this and, and you'll get, you'll get sermon comments about, you know, men watching pornography and that's true, but we, it's not just that we don't lay equal weight on women's moral culpability. That's kind of familiar. I think we've talked about that at least once, but it's that we don't take seriously the idea that what you put into your body not only affects your body biochemically, but also allows you to, to indulge. And indulgence just in this way, it ends up being harmful to the soul. It could be indulgence in anger, but much more often in modern America than say outright anger or wrath, you know, carried out on someone else. It's probably that you're indulging in distraction or you're indulging in food or indulging in drink. And that indulgence kind of leaves you open, not Mm. only to temptation, but the indulgence itself gives you a sense that, you know, basically like you deserve this. Mm. (laughs) And the reason that fasting is connected with days of repentance historically is because it's a statement. Fasting not only makes you appreciate God's gift of food and drink more, but fasting also allows you to understand that you really don't live by bread alone. But what a lot of us are doing on a regular basis is we are indulging, not just in bread, but in everything else. And, you know, find the numbers of banquets prior to the end of the world in the Bible. Most of them are going to be happening among the wealthy, among kings, you know, among the kings in Daniel who are about to fall or to be driven mad as a punishment for their idolatry. So you can see that indulgence really harms the soul in ways that are hard to predict or foresee for you, the one who is thinking of indulging. And that's just something that it's totally lost, right? So it doesn't surprise me that we have a lot of difficulty answering complicated and relatively new practical questions like, are vaccine mandates okay in the church? Because there are old questions that actually have old answers that already pertain to our lives long before 2020 or 2021. And that information was just not really available to a lot of us. Yeah. 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 I, I rather vividly remember sitting at table with a group of brother pastors years before I realized there were things like the um, uh, paleo diet and the carnivore diet. And and before I had Mm -hmm. even realized I was on my way to uh, type two diabetes just by eating too much sugar. And we were sitting at a, a table at a restaurant, fine people ran that restaurant, you know, uh, from a, a different tribe than ours though. And uh, we were about to feast on what I, I, I have to describe as deep fried soy chicken smothered in corn syrup. <laughs> yeah. And, and the words right. came out of our mouths, you know, bless this food to our bodies. And, it, and, and then with, I was ignorant of, of everything I know now about food chemistry. And, and even then I was like, you know, that just, I'm not sure he's gonna, 
I'm not sure he's gonna, you know, uh, I, I'm not, yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't force God's hand to use, you know, what used to be machine lubricating oils to bless my body. Yeah. Right. That's it. Can't. He didn't that, make it that way. That's, yeah. that's exactly it. And so this yeah. will obviously segue very nicely into the vanishing privacy in America. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it, it actually does because it contain it, it concerns and what we'll talk about this week and next week concern things that in American terms always have some rationale that it's going to be good for you or it's going to be good for you because you're part of the nation or part of the, a word we don't really use until after 2001, the homeland. And that idea is that I can do whatever I want to you, potentially at least, in the name of protecting you. Right. And notice that what you and I just said does not mean that I want the listener to send me an email, please, brief history of, a brief history of power dot com. Please send me an email, send me your tax return, send me your BMI, and I will give you advice and then I'll check up with you constantly. Because biblically, when you obtain wisdom, the thing that you need to do is integrate that into your life. And I can give you advice about that and your friends can give you advice and you can find all kinds of advice everywhere. But finally, the father tells the son what is right in Proverbs and then the son has to figure out how that actually works. That's not what the vanishing privacy in American life is. Vanishing privacy in American life means that there was a time when you didn't have, you know, all kinds of things that are just normal, social security numbers, geolocation devices with you all the time bank accounts, uh, driver's licenses, because we were set up to be a place where people were expected to be self-governing. And it's the provision of things that would seemingly be good for a large number of people that will end up causing my, my even space to govern myself to vanish. So that space is going to get progressively smaller. And now it's at the point where I'm not even allowed to govern my own bloodstream. Because my bloodstream for the good of the, you know, community, homeland, educational institution, whatever it is, for the good of that group, I need to, you know, inject things into my body that I don't want and that I don't even understand what they're doing. And they themselves have no liability if it goes wrong. So I want to I don't I, I want to get all the way down to vaccines but I think we've been a long time coming here and that's what I want to talk about this week and next at least. Can I pick on the shift of the word or the pickup of the word homeland? Like you, yeah. you it it just makes me think of Germany for some reason. Well, yeah, I mean it's it's not really a normal it's not really a normal English word, right? right. So in other Germanic languages like German but also in Slavic languages, Russia is a motherland. France is a, it's la patrie. So you get these ways of talking about the land. Americans certainly did not talk about our country that way. It was our country or the Republic or these United States. And the shift there is that when it's a homeland or, or when the nation is figured as a kind of a giant family, you are already giving to the governmental authority a power that he certainly has not had, <laughs> with the exception of uh, penal colonies. 
Good morning, Australia. Okay, I want to jump right in there on Romans 13. Yeah. Then. Romans 13. Yeah, this is, let's touch it. Romans 13 is a way that a lot of people in our circles are saying we need to do what they say, this nation yeah. that Correct. has yeah. governed us. And my personal uh, realization has been, wait a minute, they just say they govern us. Yeah. Yeah, they, they do say that. And also, historically, uh, they didn't. And they don't have... I mean, this... I'll, I'll, I'll say it again for clarity's sake. Lutherans are doing right now in 2021 what Ben Franklin was worried in the 18th century they would do, which was they come from a place where they're not expected to govern themselves, except maybe inside their village. Outside their village, which includes a congregation, they don't know how to exercise government. They don't know how to participate in politics. <laughs> Franklin thought if we have too many of them coming to colonial Pennsylvania, we're going to have this problem. Guess what? He was actually right. And that's not a show that anyone besides me would be interested in doing, but he was right. They didn't know how to participate in colonial politics. Lutherans are now replicating that once again, acting as if the government in an Anglo-Saxon derived country, especially the United States of America, is somehow just a big dad. <laughs> and when daddy tells you to do things, you do them. Not only does this go against our theological tradition with the Magdeburg Confession indicating that if the father tells the mother to put herself into prostitution for the good of the family, she can pelt him with stones. Right? Mm -hmm. That's the phrase. But also, it makes no sense constitutionally. We are actually undermining our own form of government. We are breaking Romans 13 when we engage in behavior that permits unconstitutional things to happen in our country. It really is that simple. Part of the powers that be in a constitutional republic are the constitution. <laughs> okay, that's part of it. So if you're going to let people just violate that because they said so, you are someone who is overturning our form of government yourself, even as you follow the mandate that was promulgated. Yeah, man. Wow. And it and it is that simple. It it really is that simple. Mm -hmm. And because you can see a slide over time, along with a loss of privacy in daily life, you can see a slide from self-government, relatively decentralized government into more and more and more centralized government throughout the United States on every level, to the point where the equipment that you know, local police forces are using is somehow, you know, was once military equipment and the Department of Defense is this giant thing. And all of that is because we had people who wanted to change our form of government and they successfully did while still telling us we were in the same republic. Don't exacerbate that by telling yourself that this is what Romans 13 means. Don't do that. Because that just means that you are waiting for some new form of government to come along. And that might be okay. I sincerely am agnostic on certain forms of government. They all have drawbacks, as Plato ta taught us. The problem is, when is that going to happen? And, and when this imperial system that's nice and clear cut, so the emperor tells you what to do and you just do it. Daddy says it and you do it. What? The, the transition to that is going to be horrible. Yeah, it's when, that's it's not when, actually a form of government. It's when Kamala comes in is when that will happen. It, it'll be very, very straightforward. Well, yeah, okay. Let so, us know. I mean, yeah, I, I, I think that the desire for 
the desire for someone just to tell you what to do is very, very powerful. And it's apparently very powerful <laughs> inside the Lutheran church because it's what we default to. That doesn't mean that's right. It just means it's a powerful urge that a lot of us have. Right. Um, I just, <laughs> I just personally don't understand that urge. It seems demeaning to me as an American. It seems just wrong and kind of vile. Nonetheless, it's an urge that lots of people have. Even if they don't feel the same way about their urge that I do, they need to understand that they are helping to destroy our government by doing that, right? So if you are concerned about the fact that the next you know, church over, they're not wearing masks, so they're not wearing them enough, but you're not concerned about election fraud, okay, which is part of our form of government. I know it's kind of a joke a lot of the time. I understand that. I know the history. If you're not concerned about the things that actually help uphold our form of government, but you're concerned about enforcing things that are of very dubious and even obviously wrong nature relative to our government, then you're helping to destroy things. And the major concern in Romans 13 is that there would be a government to punish wickedness and reward goodness. So think about this. Our government tells you what to do, depending on where you are and the strength of the Democratic Party, they tell you what to do with your life down to very minute levels at this point, and their patience is wearing thin. They do that. If you're saying that's good, that's okay, you are helping to punish goodness, okay? Because this is a government that blesses the murder of children. This is a government that's going to put your children in masks so that they can go to school while the people on the Emmys don't wear masks. Okay, so they're wicked and you are blessing it because they had some kind of special seal on the front of the podium during the press conference. No way. If you're going to do that, you are a destroyer. I'm going to call you an idolater because at that point, what are you trusting? I mean, think about it. Put it in old school terms. Someone stands up and they have the right image on their pendant and now we all will obey because it has spoken yeah. i mean it's it's yeah. simple i think and yeah it, it, it is simple and i think that a lot of people don't understand this especially in the church because they think that they they i mean i i truly do believe this about some members of our church and it was a slander in the 19th century but guess what i think it was kind of right they thought america wasn't really a country with its own ways of governance They thought it was just an opportunity for them to do what they want. Hmm. And the problem is we are now in conflict with the people governing this country to keep our churches open, not to require each other to be vaccinated or masked in order to be Christians. Okay. We're there now. Right. And almost nobody remembers when we were in conflict with that form of government before in order to keep Lutheran schools open. And we did actually organize politically. This is before the Johnson Amendment. So LCMS pastors had no fear of the IRS. And they told people, you need to vote against, you know, this legislator that wants to outlaw Lutheran education in Wisconsin or Nebraska or whatever it was. Okay, German language education, which is effectively Lutheran education at the time. Okay, and they organized for it. So this is not, I I do not believe this is like theologically baked into things. And it's going to be easy always for smaller groups, you know, like the Wisconsin Senate or something to kind of sit on the sidelines with this and watch, you know, especially the Missourians be quote, too involved with the world. Well, guess what? We're involved because we're actually all over the country and we have to be involved in order to keep existing. 
So if you still want to have churches in Massachusetts or California, you need to push and we need to support those people who are pushing. If we don't support them, then we will all, Ben Franklin again, hang separately. Okay. (laughs) You either hang together or you hang separately. The founding fathers understood what was required in order to deal with tyranny. They had to become anonymous, which, I mean, obviously I'm not, but I certainly support people who are. They were anonymous when they wrote largely. They needed to hang together. They needed to overcome petty differences and petty, you know, differing visions of what the future would hold. And they had to do that in order to maintain liberty that we have been mooching off basically since our church came into existence. Now we can't mooch anymore. We either help to sustain those liberties or we will perish, right? There's no communist system under which religion flourishes. (laughs) You know, they will close your church. And I don't just mean through COVID mandates. No, you mean through vanishing privacy and over time, the ability to control public opinion um, so that you are positioned where they want you. Um, Yeah, 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 yeah. uh, We can... That's maybe jumping over, you know, exhibition, exhibitionism and and then um, uh, what, surveillance that you're not aware yeah. of that they're foisting on you. And those are definitely they're narrower topics, I suppose, but they're, they're definitely worth stopping at. So you want to hit those first. Right. So I, I want to say that when we're talking about privacy, there is this is talked about differently in American law than it is maybe if the, if the listener thinks, well, privacy just means like when you're alone or or that you're left alone or that you're left to do what you want to do. And, and that is sort of part of it. But historically, there is no right to privacy in the common law. Okay. It's, you know, it could be filed other places, but it's not in the common law until it begins to be discussed under torts in the 1890s, a guy who would become a Supreme Court justice. And that's really privacy from journalistic exposure. Okay. Hmm. It will become... Yeah, it will become part of constitutional law in the Supreme Court opinion that undergirds Roe v. Wade, which is Griswold v. Connecticut, which is about the right of married couples in Connecticut to buy con- to purchase contraception, which they could not in Connecticut. It was sort of a remnant in that way. And that right to privacy is itself, <laughs> it's kind of nebulous. What does that mean? So when we're talking about privacy, I'm not using that in the sense that American law has taken it up. I'm using that in the sense that not everyone has to know or should know or is allowed to know everything about me potentially. So that's my definition. We're going to use that for the next several weeks and we'll use it because it captures two things. One is that a society that loses its manners or its sense of how people should behave or dress, or talk, especially in public, is a society where privacy becomes increasingly impossible, because I always have to sort of perform as someone, because there's no sort of public uniform to wear, right? When you see like photos, even from the 1950s or early 1960s, most adults are pretty much dressed the same way in public, right? And what, what that, one way to think about that is that it allows you to have ways of expressing yourself or ways of being or ways of thinking that do not have to be broadcast to everyone. Okay. So that's 
that that is kind of a different tangent, but we'll come back there when we talk later, probably not this week or next, about internet privacy and surveillance, because the internet in some ways realizes a project that began with people being able to be, you know, vastly different from how they present themselves to one another in public. You know, I'm wearing a suit, you know, she's wearing essentially pajamas. And this other guy always looks like he's about to start golfing, but he doesn't actually golf, right? Those, just those ways of dressing, all of everything that a person can, you know, I have to broadcast who I am by how I dress now. It's not just a choice that is made for me socially. And then I, I wear a suit or I, I put on a hat. Now, everything can be known about me, not just when I go out in public, but based on what I do on the internet. So there is an increasing exposure, both in public and also uh, digitally, of who I am that didn't used to have to happen. What we're largely talking about the next two weeks is a notion of surveillance. And that links up with what we were talking about to start the show, which is that even before there are adequate technologies of surveillance that can be used by police forces, by governments, by military forces. We have the reality that people watch each other. And if, especially via media, I can get you to watch somebody else and to do that effectively enough that you can do for me what I said people should do, then I don't really need to force you to do it because you're going to do it to yourself and others. And that idea of surveillance, which is not chosen, is something that's always been around. I mean, if you grew up in a small town, it's, it's still like this, right? Um, or, or a neighborhood uh, where everyone knows each other, or a church congregation. But the idea here is that if I really want power over you, what I will do really effectively is get you to be an informer. And in our case, you know, it, it, it's, it's revealed at the, you know, after the fall of pretty much every Warsaw Pact country that, you know, whatever horribly large percentage of the population were informers for the secret security agency of that Warsaw Pact country. That's not really required in modern America. I, because I think partly smartphones achieve this because they broadcast the message so frequently and constantly and consistently that I, no one's going to pay you. Nobody may even, you know, like your, your tweet or your post or whatever it was, but you will enforce social standards on even your own kin. It doesn't matter if they're blood, if they're not vaccinated, they can't see you. Okay. And it's that simple. And so if you have a system in which we are constantly being broadcast to. And we'll talk about everything that came before that. But if I now have a system where I can constantly broadcast to you, then I really don't, e I don't even need to pay you. There, there will be no reward for cutting off your parents or your brother or your sister because they're not vaccinated. You'll just think it's like something people do and then you'll do it. So you become surveillance and I don't even have to pay for it. And you end up just at the bottom of the controlled opposition because you're dying for what you believe is right with no actual virtue coming out of it. 
No, no. I mean, there's no, there's no payback. There's no growth. There's no nothing. I mean, you just, you just did what you thought you were supposed to do. And prior to the advent of the kind of technologies that we've had, especially since the smartphone, it was almost impossible to achieve that level of everyday behavioral consensus among people. Yeah. No, the brainwashing devices make a big difference. Yeah. There's, there's no way yeah. around it. And then, but then that's without including the surveillance level that they do bring into your life. And right. uh, the attempt to remove yourself from that, I don't know, it's been a couple of years now since I've been thinking about trying to downsize that footprint. And of course, having a YouTube channel with my name on it and stuff doesn't you know make that easier. I'm not really planning <laughs> to hide. What I'm right. trying to do is not just be followed everywhere I go. Right. And it's just, yeah. it's not that easy because, uh, what yeah. they are doing when you simply go online with your footprint, uh, how they're turning that into money, how uh, dark web uses that to d- define who you are and then sell your identity. Those are just yeah. things you can't avoid. You, you don't get out right. of that space very easily at all. I, I, I think that, you know, as we record this yesterday was the, was the great Facebook outage of 2021. And I missed that. I was offline myself. So I didn't even know. That's great. It sounds like a good time. Right. Just saying. And I think that the way people describe being online all the time, and especially, especially on social media, but just online, is they really should think about the way that people describe this. Like, I'm anxious. Um, I'm sad. You know, I, I feel like I'm not good enough, or I feel like I'm obsessed with how good I am. And then I, I need people to validate that constantly. You know, th- this really is like being sort of an outsider or a very strange person in a small town. And you don't want to live that way. <laughs> but, you know, you don't want people looking at you all the time. You don't want people kind of nosing around, you know, snooping around the property. But who knows who's looking at you on social media? I mean, not just the people that like or comment on what you're doing or something, but are just looking at your profile and you don't even know who they are. And there, so there is something to surveillance, which is corrosive, I think, both for the one being surveilled, the one, the one who is being watched because we're, we're both watching and being watched on the internet. Yeah. Right. And and as we are being watched, even by people that, that actually socially we could know, even if we don't, right. We could meet them. We're only one friend away or something. We live in the same town or we do the same thing for work or whatever. Even in that case, I don't want to be watched all the time. And the sense that you're constantly being watched is destructive of the spirit. I mean, it's why just think about, you know, I'm depressed or I don't get enough done or all these kinds of things. Those are things that that are the way they are in other human situations. And before this time in history, it's just that they're in really, you know, enclosed environments that people try to break out of, right? But we're all putting ourselves into those environments voluntarily, even if we don't live in a town where everyone knows everybody else's name. And some people find that sort of cozy, right? If you don't, or even if you do, you can at least guess what it might be like to always feel that you're being watched. So even when you close your blinds, you know, someone is peering in, you know, into your home. Why? When you start thinking about, especially technological things, the same way you would think about inviting someone over, would I have this person in my house? Would I let this scene that I'm watching in this movie be played out in my living room in front of my kids? Then why am I looking at it? Mm -hmm. 
Or rather, I think, why am I letting it look at me? And I don't just mean that in terms of what, you know, Zuckerberg is monetizing. I mean that in terms, and I, I do mean this sincerely. I believe that surveillance is in its nature at least predatory and therefore very possibly demonic. Yeah. Let amen. me give you an example of predatory. Predatory is deer season is coming up. I'm going to sit, you know, a little too high up a tree and I'm going to watch a deer who doesn't know that I'm looking at him. Okay. And I'm going to do that because I want to kill him. (laughs) Okay. That's predatory. I'm the predator. This is what vis-a-vis the human soul demons do. And the idea that I would permit both in my nation, right? My, my crumbling Republic in my nation, but also in my daily life by my own choice that I would submit myself to and participate in surveillance. It's, it's, it's evil. Hmm. <laughs> I think it's just evil. And that's why I don't even want to do it to other people. You know, like the idea that I would enforce, you know, my vision of, I don't know what on, on someone else's life. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to talk to you about it. I mean, we, we talk about daily life on the show all the time. I'm happy to talk to you about it, but I'm not here to live your life for you. I'm not trying to be a kind of a demon in your life, right? A demon, a demon wants you because he doesn't have anything, right? Evil is nothing in its nature. And so it wants, it needs to use something that is actually made by a good God. And so I, I don't, I don't, I mean, God gives me what I need. I don't need anything from you. Demons want possession of you. They need you, right? And I think that it's not just that our our privacy has vanished, especially vis-a-vis the internet, but also that even our sense of being able to have something that is ours, like our soul, our time, that is gone. And we let the watchers take it from us. Hmm. I mean, they're they're looking at us. Hmm. Hmm. Inside the box, you say. Hmm? Hmm? Tinfoil hat, you say. I'm kind of with you, though. I'm, I'm entirely with you and probably even further down, down the trope. But let's just bridge into classification and selective disclosure versus non-disclosure, since those will yeah. be important points. Yeah, because if you look at the way that our government talks about this and the system develops over time, um, and our government is just one example, and the reason that I'm talking about it over the next several weeks is because it's the best example of surveillance in modern American life, and it has the most documentation. The things that I just said are things that I could observe about how people live their lives with each other, that they learn more about each other from the internet than they do from personal acquaintance, for example. So we're all doing this. It's just that our government is doing this in a publicly often documented way. Sometimes they don't want it to be documented. And so levels of secrecy and the idea that they don't have to disclose what they're doing, which is, if you know anything about the history of republics from Venice to anything else, is anathema to Republican government. It's also in its own way anathema to other forms of government, but especially Republican means that they get, you get no privacy if they don't want you to have it. They can track you, they can watch you, they can listen to you, but they get secrecy, right? So <laughs> I, 
I said demonic as an adjective. I didn't, you know, and then I also used demon as a noun. You don't have to literally think that someone surveilling you is a demon or is possessed by a demon in order to understand that what they're doing is demonic in nature. And Mm -hmm. here's what I mean by that. They get to hide. You don't know they're there. They get to see, they get to know. You don't know they're, they're seeing, you don't know they're knowing. And they get to hear potentially things that you said in what you thought were utter privacy. So whatever happens with all that stuff that Alexa hears, I don't know. They get to steal. I mean, really, what they do is they swallow that information and they profiteer on it. And it does all manner of things. I mean, yeah. you, we could track I, pharmaceuticals and ask all the questions about all the different ways that bad things have been done in the history of that organ, you know, that that era of science. Yeah, uh, it's it's the same thing here, though. Um, yeah. Now, I I I think that the profiteering thing is true. I don't think it goes far enough because I don't think that it captures the relationship between hearing things that you weren't meant to hear and what it is that your soul is actually latching onto. And I mean, hear the soul of the one doing the surveillance or or the soul of the watcher. If I hear things I'm not supposed to hear, then what I will do with those things is unknown, but it will generally be dark. It is a rare person who is able to hear things he shouldn't hear and to do something virtuous with them. So I think, I have no doubt that Alexa and and every other kind of captured conversation is monetized or it's used to build a file on you or it's used to do whatever some combination of a corporation or a government agency wants to do. But what I think is that the people in those positions, listening to those things, capturing those things, processing those things, their souls are likewise being corroded by the idea that they are hearing things that no one meant for them to hear. Right. So this isn't even overhearing. <laughs> this is this is eavesdropping and eavesdropping. I mean, the word is literally about being on and in someone else's house when you're not supposed to be. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> so, yeah. So so the problem here is that it is it is as if in this case via devices, but, you know, way back in time via, you know, snooping neighbors. It is as if you don't even have a home. You're already homeless. You just, you live in something that, that by their sufferance, you get to occupy, but they get to know what's going on in there. Like some sort of tyrannical parent that won't even let you close your door when you go to bed at night. So there is, there is no privacy. And I think that that problem, and that's why this show has been more heavily theological than some others, this particular episode that problem is a basic problem for the human soul. It's not just a problem of, I don't know, getting the constitutional law straight, you know, unreasonable search and seizure. It's a problem theologically for someone's soul that it has no privacy, no silence, yeah. no peace. Yeah. That's paranoia. It's called paranoia. Yeah. You, and you, so we shouldn't be surprised that people are, you know, they're sad, they're anxious, they're unhappy. It's not just social media. And it's not just that, you know, data about you is being used, you know, for money. Those are all happening. 
the problem is that your soul and the souls of those who are setting up these systems of surveillance, whether corporate or military or any other, those are all being at best (laughs) corroded and maybe destroyed and possessed because the activity of surveillance is not one that is really natural except under predatory conditions. So, so I, I, I agree. I agree. I agree. I think really the thieving that I, I want to emphasize is the heart uh, at the end of the day. It is the soul that is being thieved. And um, I think I can make a pretty decent apologetic for the use of language like demon and ghost to refer to an entirely psychologically explainable yet even third to fourth generational experience that I think could, it could run some circles around an atheist or two out there who doesn't want to like think the language is valuable. But once you've done all of that, I just don't see what stops you from believing that there's such a thing as dark spirits in the world or aliens that have hidden ta- powers that can yeah. do really terrible yeah. things. And so, so to say that we're being watched through these machines for opportunities to steal our souls is not really, I think, that far out of the park again. It's, no, this isn't I mean, crazy it, talk. It's not, enough I, people have been on the internet long enough to just know that that's true. I hope. <laughs> you would think. But then there's enough on the internet that just don't know because they're still, they're in the hive mind. They're borgified. You know, they're bubbled up. And uh, they have been captured by them via secret things. Yeah. And and yeah. that is, that's what we're at here, right? And that's why, so I say yeah. thieves, it's like thieves of my people, for goodness sakes. You know, I, that, that, yeah. Yeah, I I think the idea that it's a hive mind, I mean, growing up in a small town, something you realize is that most people actually like it and they don't mind it because it's normal and it's comfortable and it's explicable. And so even when people are separated from those conditions where, you know, everybody's kind of vaguely everyone else's like third cousin and, you know, even when those conditions don't exist materially, I think most human beings not everybody and a lot of the people even that I've met that listen to the show are not like this, but most human beings seem to want predictable comfort in a stable environment. Okay. So that's, so that's fine. That's part of the tragedy here that they have been taught that being surveilled is okay and normal, right? So it really shouldn't surprise you when vast numbers of people go along with whatever comes down the pike if they see or at least are told lots of other people are going along with it. So the the real place that that's a disappointment or that that, that attitude, that normal human attitude is extremely costly is in any position of leadership. <laughs> because in any position of leadership, it's extremely costly for you to favor comfort, normalcy and consensus over everything else. And it's not that any of those three things is bad, evil in itself. It's just that anyone in charge of something needs to understand that they aren't, that normalcy isn't as normal and comfort isn't actually as comfortable and consensus isn't actually as sensible as you think. And you, you just, you're watching out for other things that other people can't see. That's why leaders, both religious and civic are called in, especially the old Testament shepherds. Because the shepherd can see things and defend from things that a sheep cannot see. So uh, this is something that you and I have pushed on. Uh, do you want to go on? Do you want to go on? No, go ahead. Okay. You and I have pushed on this, I think maybe even in personal conversations more than anything else, but the the difficulty with owning 
the ability to say, I see something others can't see mm-hmm. and not suddenly be shamed into some sort of like, well, that's pride, you know, and, okay. and yeah. then don't mm-hmm. act because you, you, who do you think you are? Um, I don't think I'm alone in having that inner monologue. Yeah. Okay. According to many people that talk to me, I, I don't have an inner monologue, so I'm probably not equipped to answer this question, but I will try. Now you can be a model for us to get out. We got to find some some sanity to follow. <laughs> they were they were like, "Don't you have an inner monologue?" It's like, "No." Well, don't you think about what you're going to say before you say it? No, I just talk. I don't. No, it's because you read. It's your reading. Until we get off guess, and read a I bunch more and get off the computers, I, I I think in 15 years I'll know exactly what you're talking about. Maybe, take time though. I don't know. I don't know what I. There's probably just something wrong with me. But what <laughs> what I what I would what I would say about that is that you have to distinguish between humility, which is absolutely necessary for leadership. Okay. Humility, which understands your position under God, but also over whatever group of people, your family, your church, whatever it is. Humility to understand your position, which is always under God, combined with a focus on competence rather than on appearance to be and not to seem. And probably the biggest problem that we have in our church body, in our churches, in our families is desiring to appear to be something rather than being what is needful. Yeah. It is much more needful for us to say clearly as a church body, we will support anyone who does not get vaccinated for any reason. That will permit lots of things like consensus on keeping churches open when vaccination gets to be a much more extreme social and political demand than it is even today as we record this. You need to say things like that. You can't hem and haw and talk about what the majority of people you think might be doing. That's irrelevant at the time. It doesn't mean you don't care about that majority of people, hypothetically, in your hypothetical opinion. It simply means that you are able to see that certain bad things will happen and to keep others away from those things or to make continuing life possible for those people. When that kind of leadership is not provided, when there's hemming and hawing, I referred a couple of weeks ago, maybe to the Mormons being unable to decide whether homosexuality at their flagship university was acceptable or not, a problem we have also had. If they can't do that, then what are they going to be able to fix? Because if you, if you can't even, if you cannot even do anything or say anything about problems in your own midst, how will you handle things that you've never had to deal with before? If it can't be and, you, what you going to do? Yeah, that, I mean, that just is the nature of the thing. That is the nature of being in charge of anything. And it doesn't mean that you're, quote, better than somebody else. That's not the point. The point is that God sets things up in a certain way. And most people want to be led. And leadership requires doing things for your family or your nation or your church or whatever the group is, doing things that are not understood and cannot be understood and won't be understood. And that's okay. But I think all of that has to do with the desire to be judged by men rather than by God. And when you want to be judged by men, 
when you want to be surveilled by them and watched by them, then not only will, will you never win, you can't win at that game, but also you will, and you will bring so many other people into such great danger playing that game. Whereas if you are judged by God, then you commend everything else and everyone else, including your family and everything that's in God's hands. You know, that's what the martyrs say. The church is in God's hands. My family is in God's hands. So I can die. So, so what's the real game right now for the Lutheran Church of Missouri Center? What's the real game? What should we be doing? The real game is that we should recognize that the people that seem, quote, extreme are the very people who are generally maintaining traditional stances and oppositions. So if they don't want to get vaccinated, <laughs> you know, your forefathers barely wanted to participate in American society, let alone be vaccinated. If they want to homeschool their kids, uh, your forefathers didn't even want to really teach their kids English, at least not in school, except maybe if they went to college because they needed to stay cohesive. So you need to recognize that your reason for existing is not maintained by a, a large group of people going with the flow wherever they are. Your reason for existing is maintained by people that are often strident but who have very definite opinions and very definite opposition to tyranny in church and state, those people need to be protected, even if you don't 100% agree with them. I think you should 100% agree with them, but you don't even need to for political, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense of that word, for political purposes, you just need to understand who actually keeps this going. And that momentum to keep any of this going in a future generation is not coming from someone who is fine with whatever the media is telling him. That's just not the way it's going to go because the media is not telling that person, that normal person, the media is not telling him anything except lies. And I can't keep a church or a family or a nation going on lies. So why would I invest in protecting everything represented by those who believe lies. That's, that's the end game. We either side with truth, we stop allowing ourselves to be lied to, or we side with lies and we will perish with them because we will go out of existence either forcibly because our churches are closed or our pastors are persecuted or whatever, or we will persecute ourselves and each other out of existence, which I could also see happening based on what's happened in the past 18 months. You're listening to A Brief History of Power with Two White Guys. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, 
the Evangelical Lutheran faith in the beautiful inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org.